Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Self-Control Through Torah. I'm David Gottlieb, a scholar in the history of Judaism and a member of the Faculty of Jewish Studies at the Spertus Institute for Jewish Learning and Leadership in Chicago. And I'm Modia Silva, a psychotherapist based in Toronto, Canada, and also a somatic experiencing practitioner, um, which is a type of trauma therapy. Which uh, is going to come in handy because the Torah portion we're talking about today, Modya, is Kitisa in the book of Exodus. If you've joined us before, you may know uh, what Modya and I are doing on this podcast, but sometimes we forget. So I'm going to tell you what we do on this podcast to remind us. Um, we are doing self-control through Torah, going through uh, each Torah portion uh, during this year and discussing it in the in light of a certain midah or soul trait. We dwell on a soul trait, a midah, for four weeks, cycle through four Torah portions, at the end of which we move on to a new midah and keep going through the Torah portions. So this week, we find ourselves uh, looking for Musar lessons on humility, on Ava, in the Torah portion of Kitisa, and Kitisa can be found in the book of Exodus from chapter 30, verse 11 to chapter 34, verse 35. Um, I have been missing from the podcast for the last couple of weeks. Uh, I lost my mother recently, and I would like to dedicate uh, today's learning on Kisa to her memory, uh, and I her Hebrew name is Hannah Bat-Haya, uh, and... Uh, she was lived a long, adventurous, blessed life, full of, full of learning. Uh, I went back to school at the age of forty-eight, earned my PhD when I was fifty-eight, and I took that lesson, among many other lessons, from my mother, who quit college at eighteen to marry my father, uh, became a Rosie the Riveter during World War II. Uh, when my father returned from overseas, they launched into ha having a family. They had six children. And when I, the youngest of the six, was in kindergarten, my mother went back to school to continue her education. She got her undergraduate degree, and she just kept going. And the day after I graduated from high school, she earned her PhD in English literature. Uh, and it is in her memory and her honor uh, that I learn today, and I always learn with her in mind. So Moja, uh, yeah. this is uh, just such a rich Torah portion. You and I were speaking before we began to record about how much there is in this Torah portion to talk about and how rich are the lessons with regard to humility. I'm just going to point out the two um, most, to me, the most prominent uh, events in this Torah portion. One is the instructions for the building of the Mishkan. And the other is the incident, of course, of the golden calf, the great sin of idol worship um, executed in the desert while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the commandments from God, the Aserat HaDivrot. And one scarcely knows where to begin. Uh, I'm just going to um, say... I'm going to 
I'm asking myself this question. I don't mean to put you on the spot. I struggle with the question of whether, uh, of what kind of lesson to take from humility in the incident of the golden calf. I sort of feel like I need to start there. I feel like it all starts there. On one, on the one hand, the the Israelites sort of panic when Moses goes up the mountain and disappears. They think uh, he's not coming back, and they ask Aaron to fashion a god for them. I struggle in my mind with whether this is an act of arrogance or an act of self-abasement. Because humility, anava, is on a scale. And you either take up too much space or too little. And it may be that the Israelites think themselves not worthy of experiencing this theophany that they've just experienced, or it could be that they think we're in charge and we've always been in charge. I struggle with this. I want to know from you with this Torah portion where you begin. What for you, where do you begin looking at this Torah portion through the lens of humility? So that's a, I, I always say, I always say when you ask me a question, that's a great question. Is that a way of you saying, how dare you put me on the spot like that? No, 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 it's good because, um, because we talked about this just before we started the podcast, that we knew that as we were making this and committing to do this for a year, that there would be certain parshas where it was incredibly difficult to find references to the particular character trait, the Mida that we were going to look at. Right. And, and I wrote pages for this one. Like I, I, it just seems like such an easy one when it comes to humility. So I, so I can dive in and also go to parts of the Parsha, but I wonder if first we want to step back and actually talk about what Anava is. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Let's do that. Okay. So, um, so there are lots of places in the Musa tradition that we could go to to read about humility. But since we're looking at the Parsha through the lens of this book, Cheshbon HaNefesh, Rabbi Leffen's book, where he outlines 13 character traits, um, I'm going to pull from that. And he, st- he basically says that humility is the following. The requirement to learn from everyone, to recognize your own failings, and then to correct them. And that if you do that, the result is that you shift your focus from your own virtues, focusing on yourself and your friend's faults to doing what's right in the world, whatever your purpose is in the world. So um, so I know you asked a specific question about the Parsha, but I just wanna, if I can start with learning from everyone. And I thought about what does that mean and I used to be in a Musarvad for seven or eight years with Rabbi Kellerman, who lives in Jerusalem. Um, and he was a student of Reb Shlomo Volbe, the last of the great Musar Rebbe's who survived the Second World War. Um, I think Reb Volbe died somewhere around 2007, 2006, 2007, something like that. Um, so, the, he, so Rabbi Kellerman was in the study hall in Jerusalem. And there was a break. There was It was the end of the session. Everyone had gone off to have a vacation. And Reb Volbe walked down the hall and walked into this into the base medrash, into the study hall, and saw Rabbi Kellerman still learning. 
and he was like, what are you doing? It's, it's, it's the end of Zman. It's the end of the session. You should be going and having a vacation and seeing your family. And he's like, no, no, I need to just keep learning and learning. And he's like, okay, this is what I need you to do if you want to keep learning. I want you to go to the zoo in Jerusalem and go from, um, what are they called, compounds? Like compound mm -hmm. to compound, animal to animal, and see what character trait you can discover in each animal. And that's how you're going to learn about Midot. That's how you're going to learn about character traits. I so love it's not, that. Yeah. So it's not even just learning from everyone. It's learning from everything. And I think when you do that, and I try and do that with my kids. So they're young and it's like, what do they know? Their frontal cortex hasn't fused yet and, you know, all that stuff. And But so long as I do that, I'm just pumping my ego up. And I think anava, the power of humility, is learning, is is taking the approach that I can learn from everyone and everything. I like that a great deal. Yeah, I like that, and I appreciate your framing and reminding us that that part of our lens for doing this work is using uh, Menachem Mendel Lefven's Heshbon Hanefesh. Uh, I find his commentary on this uh, midah incredibly biting. I mean, his observations about human nature are, um, are, are quite incisive and, uh, sometimes rather harsh. I want to go back to his forward to something he says in his forward. And, and, uh, he quotes the Vilna Gaon who said the following, and this is on page 21 of the, of the, uh, of the Feldheim edition that, that we're using uh, of Cheshbon Nefesh. So the Vilna, he quotes the Vilna Gaon as saying, I've already written that there are two types of character traits, natural traits, which man has from birth and traits, which one acquires through habits. The traits, which man has from birth are referred to as his ways for they are the ways that he follows from when he was created. And, um, and anava is one of those, but anava is on a on a spectrum. And the first thing that uh, Menachem Mendeleffen says in his short section on humility is that we is that we, although humility is an inborn trait, it is a spectrum, and we can easily be drawn to the wrong end of the spectrum. He says, man's self adoration is the strongest love that God implanted within the animal spirit. So our self-regard, not only our humility, but our self-regard is inborn. Rabbi Leffen then says it spreads to include his body, his offspring, his possessions, and everything related to him, this self-adoration, until it is strong enough to overcome all the normal desires and pain that come into conflict with his physical well-being, the raising of his children, and the protection of his property. And it is from this self-adoration that honor stems, a concept which was also implanted in man through God's wisdom. It is the nature of man to experience pleasure when others admire his virtues. So we are drawn away from humility by having a certain kind of self-regard that is implanted within us. And the self-regard is important because we have, you know, there's a, there's a sort of Musar mantra in humility, which goes something like no more than my place, no less than my space. I want to wind up when I'm working on humility 
um, in ex taking up exactly the space and the energy that I'm designed to exert and take up in the world. Rabbi Leffen, I think, is talking about this. I want to just say one more thing before turning it back to you, and that is that um, that that the Chafetz Chaim has interesting things to say about this. Um, I think the focus of your remarks was sort of about how we go out into the world, um, but the Chafetz Chaim uh, said, uh, let me see if I can find it because I just lost it. Um, the Chafetz Chaim said something very interesting about humility when asked how he had such a great effect on the Jewish world. He was a great um, uh, sage and, and had a lot of influence on the Musar movements in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. When he was asked how he had such a great effect on the Musar world, he said, I went out and tried to change the world and I had no success at that. Um, so I returned to my town, tried to change that, had no success at that. Uh, tried to change my community, had no success at that. Tried to change my family, had no success at that. Finally, I focused on myself and worked to change myself. And that's how I wound up having such a profound influence on the world. I think that's a great lesson in humility in and of itself. I think so. And um, and because you've been wrapping it around this idea of self-adoration, um, and it, it, it's, I, I, it is true what he says, right? That self-adoration leads to honor, which makes you feel good. And so that does seem to pull you away from um, from anava, from humility. But I want to um, tie in something then that is in the Parsha. The Maharal of Prague makes a connection. If we go to chapter 33, verse 18, and then chapter 33, verse 23, and the Maharal connects these two, because this is when God is going to present God's self and Moses says, it says, Vayomer, and Moses says, um, show me, I pray you, your glory or your kavod, your honor. So Moses is saying, please show me your honor, kavod. And God's response in verse 23 is, um, well, in 22, it'll come to pass while my honor passes by that I'll put you in a cleft of the rock I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And then in 23, and I will take away my hand so you can see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So because the word kavod is used in this case, I think what we're learning is that honor isn't a bad thing, but it has to be, um, it has to be demonstrated or used with particular intention. And so... I think of it like this, that um, what I learned about humility is you go up to someone who's a great pianist and you say, could you please play me something? Because I know you're a great pianist. And shiflut, like not a different type of humility, would go, no, 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 I'm really not that good. I'm not, I, I won't play for you. But this type of humility, anava, is, yeah, of course, it's true. I am good. I will play for you, but I need you to know that all the skills that I have came from God. They were gifts to God, from God. And so, yes, I'm a good pianist. Uh, and so you can honor me by listening to my piano playing, but 
is, is really all a gift from God. I think that's what we strive for, right? With Anava. Yep. Yep. You know, that reminds me that if you, by some reckonings, if you look at all the elements that the human body is composed of, um, 99% of our body consists of six elements, oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, and phosphorus. The amount of each of those in the average human body, if you calculate their dollar worth, is about $576 in 2016 dollars, <laughs> American dollars. <laughs> and all the other elements that we have in trace amounts are worth about $9 more. So we're worth about $585, not nothing, but certainly which, not- Which uh, is close, which I just want to say is close to $1,000 Canadian. Okay. So, so- Thank you for, for doing that for our Canadian listeners. But the Parsha begins with God saying to Moses, when you take a census of the Israelite people according to their enrollment, each shall pay the Lord a ransom for himself on being enrolled that no plague may come upon them through their being enrolled. This is what everyone who has entered the record shall pay, a half shekel by the sanctuary weight. I mean, that's what we're worth Yeah, in a certain sense. We have to understand that in in cosmic soul terms, the the amount that can ransom us reflects on the meagerness and the contingency of our physical existence. This is what the Torah portion begins with. I think this is important um, for another reason that we haven't discussed yet which is which is this uh i was listening yesterday to shy held's rabbi shy held's new podcast called answers withheld which i think is a great name for a podcast by shy held right. that's fantastic uh, and he talks about when he was a, a, a hillel rabbi starting out in his career he dealt constantly with the crushing self-loathing that his students were experiencing. This wasn't all that long ago. Um, and I think the problem has only gotten worse. There is a phenomenon abroad in the land that that I experienced for a while when I was young, which one of my sisters jokingly said to me, you act like you're the biggest piece of crap that the world ever revolved around. Mm. Well, and this is a phenomenon that I think is a problem today, which is an inverse humility problem, that we think we, we loathe ourselves for not reaching a kind of elevated uh, perfection that primarily social media holds up to us as an attainable goal. Right. Um, and thinking that you're the worst, the biggest piece of crap that the world ever revolved around is a problem of anava. You think you should be taking up much more space than you are. And there is that is a kind of Gehinnom to me. Right. So we know that Musar is primarily a behavioral study, a, a practice in behavior modification, <clears throat> which then influences your mind and your heart. But, um, but as you say that, I was thinking then, oh, well, you need to then put your hand in your left pocket, not your right pocket. You remember, though, um, I think it's Rabbi... Um, Simcha Bunim of Peshischa. Correct. 
which I want to go to that town wherever it is. Gesundheit. Yeah, thank you. Um, that he would carry two messages on scraps of paper and put one in each pocket. And one of them would say, I am dust and ashes. And the other one would say, the whole world was made for me. And so when you were feeling pretty lofty, you would reach in and pull out I'm dust and ashes to bring you back down to earth. And when you and when you have no when you have no um self-worth or feeling of self-worth, you reach in and pull the other one out. The whole world was made for me. It's like so um so yeah, I think maybe in my therapy practice I need to like create some modern version of those two cards and hand them out to clients. Well, that's where I that's where I was going with that observation. I wanted to know if this kind of self-loathing is something you see a lot in your practice. And from a Musar perspective, not that your clients are coming to you for Musar, but I know that this work suffuses a lot of your thinking and a lot of your life. First of all, do you see a lot of this in your practice? And second of all, what is the cause of this, do you think? And what is the approach you can we can take to it, we, your listeners? I um I do see a lot of it and it all seems to revolve around perfectionism that um and it's, I think it's what you said that somehow western society has shifted our thinking to we have to be perfect and certainly as you say those social media platforms um people only post beautiful things and it's like that's just a that's just a nudge towards perfectionism so I asked um I asked an Israeli client a long time ago what the Hebrew word for perfection was because I knew that there actually wasn't one. And and they struggled and they were like, well, I think it's shlemut. And it's That's like what well, I would have said. Yeah. And it's like, well, shlemut is like completeness, but you can be complete and still not perfect. You can still right. have you can still have flaws. And then um last week I actually saw this rabbi and mentioned it to him. And he was like, well, Matsuyan. And I was like, well, Matsuyan is actually excellent. And it's like, that's still not perfection. There is no word in Hebrew that, well, there is a word today. It's perfectionist. Of course. Yeah, you're right. But, but there's no like biblical word for perfection. There's no uh -huh. even really modern word for perfection. Class, uh -huh. one of my teachers once said that perfection and human should not be said in the same sentence. Hmm. But I think that is the problem. I think that's the problem that we have today is everyone strives for perfection. Yeah, yeah. Or feels as if they should and they don't even know how. Right, right. And I get caught in it. I mean, I'm not, um, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. And so there are aspects of my physical um, presentation, like my hairline, where I have a notion of what a perfect hairline should be. And mine is receding and it's like, oh, I'm less than perfect. And it's just, I just get caught up sometimes in that. And that is, I think that's the, that's my weakness and my challenge of living in this society. Yeah. I, I'm glad that you mentioned that physical aspect. It's interesting to me that we spend so much of our lives, the majority of a normal lifespan is overwhelmingly spent in physical and mental decline. Mm -hmm. But it's but it can be spent in spiritual elevation. That is the challenge. 
And I think the spiritual challenge of this Torah portion is about the inner versus the outer. And I think in our cultural uh, culture, especially the balancing of inner development and outer beauty is way out of whack. Um, Rabbi Shefa Gold, whom I sometimes turn to for sort of the spiritual aspects of certain parshiot, has a really interesting uh, observation about this. So part of the parsha has to do with the building of the Mishkan. Everybody has to contribute. The knitting together of the Mishkan is the creation of an empty space that the divine can fill. And in the midst of this, the golden calf is created, which is an external solid manifestation with no empty space within it, at least as far as we know, that reflects an image upon which we cast our hopes and dreams. So one is an empty space to be filled by the divine, and one is a solid image made of gold, uh, which we with which we which has no inherent meaning that we imbue uh, or try to imbue with divinity. The central lesson, I think, here with respect to humility, is that um, it's the worshiping and staying attracted and attached to forms, as Shefa Gold says, rather than focusing on essence can make us think when we look at our own image, especially because we spend most of our lives in physical and mental decline, can make us think we will never be worthy, that we are becoming the biggest piece of crap that the world ever revolved around. And this is an inverse kind of arrogance. Our job in life from a spiritual perspective, and this is what Kiti Sa is teaching us, that has to do with humility, is the creation of a space that can be filled with the divine. And it's an empty space. And we have to realize that we are but containers for that energy that we can then manifest in the world. We are creating a space for something that is not something that we create, like the golden calf. So idol worship, the central lesson, I think, of this Torah portion, is thinking that we create reality, when in essence we are to be creating containers and contributing modestly and in a communal way to the creation of a container for the divine. If we see our lives and our days and even our later years as that kind of effort, we will perforce be exercising humility, and we will not feel humiliated. Wow. That feels like a mic drop right there. I wanna... yeah, Thank you, everyone, for listening, and have a good day. <laughs> Well, I, so I want to ask you maybe if we can try and get a bit practical, um, because as you were talking about that, I was thinking, okay, so I'm also a container, like my physical body is a container for my soul, that I am a soul and I happen to have a physical body that it's residing in for now. And so I could see creating space. Um, I can see actually doing it. I can see doing stretching or, you know, yoga exercises or no, uh, or somatic experiencing. I can see doing something with my body to and visualizations to create space in my body for my soul to expand and live its full potential. And then you just upped it to the divine, up to God. It's like, how do I create space in my life to allow the divine in? 
And all I've really got is space and time. Those are the two main constructs, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, space, uh, yeah, space meaning physical, meaning um, meaning the absence of something as well as the presence of something, right. and 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 time. So those are my two tools to use to try and create that container for God to dwell in, for the Shekhinah to dwell in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that's beautiful. Yeah. But how do I how do I do that? Right. So you um so you uh asked about how you began your remarks just now by talking about how we could how we could manifest this in the world, right? How we could make this mm -hmm. practical. But I think you already do that. Um I th I've known you and you and I have studied together now for, I think, more than 15 years, right? Coming on closer to 20. 20. Yeah. So, uh, so here's, so I'm going to, I'm going to work against your t humility now by telling you how wonderful you are. I notice about you that everything you do, um, uh, in your work, in your study, in your physical conditioning, uh, is about making yourself more of an instrument to, to help other people. And I think through this, you um, exercise and demonstrate your love of Torah and your love of God. Um, but you do it in a way that doesn't proclaim those virtues. So I think you're already doing it. Let me just give you um, one example. Um, you don't ever violate the confidence of any of your clients, but you talk about how much you have to have to do active listening. So the way that I hear you um, using humility as a way to help others is that is that you act as a container for both in, in your work. I'm just talking about your work now. We're, we'll get to your family later, but I see you doing the same thing at home. But you are attuned to the energy of the other. You are not in conversation waiting to have your turn to speak so that you can say what you had planned to say to begin with. You are deeply influenced by what others do and say. You pick up others' energy. That is, a, that is humility in action. Right. Well, humility and maybe the tie, and I, I appreciate all of that. Thank you. Um, is that that's what Rabbi Leffen says as well, is that that the process towards humility is silence and it's si and it's to be silent when you're among people who are lesser than you and silent when you're among people who are greater than you in order to learn from others virtues and to see when they have pride and 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 when when he says when they have pride he means that's a negative thing right because, right because in 48 ways to wisdom in, in, in the last chapter of Pekei Avot, it says there are 48 ways to wisdom. And one of the ways is to take pleasure, not pride, because pride puffs your ego and that destroys humility. Yeah. Um, so I think you're right. It's like not just being silent, but it's being silent with an intention, like being silent with an intention to learn, with a curiosity to not put your ego first and just to be with someone else or be in the world yes 
Silence with an intention to learn. Precisely so. And silent and and to what you've just said before about God and the divine is silence with an intention to be a container, mm -hmm. or or a or no, it's not a container. It's a um, what's it called? Like a channel, like a like a um, a path, a uh, conduit. A conduit. Thank you. That's the word. Um, yeah, to be a conduit for the energy for the divine light. Um, I have a. I, yeah. I wanted to ask you one more thing about Rabbi Leffen that is very interesting to me. In most Musar curricula that you see, we start with humility. The idea, I think, being it is very hard to cultivate your midot, your, your character traits, until you start from a place of humility, knowing uh, exactly how much space one takes up exactly where to put one's focus exactly what to expect of oneself and rabbi leffen doesn't start there humility is what is it the fifth six six the, the six the sixth trait i mean what do you think about that are these in an order what why does this come sixth why isn't it first in this book i don't know we asked that question in the first one as well because the first trait that he talks about is equanimity and right. Um, from from Reb Shlomo Volbe's perspective, that's the last thing that you should be working on. Is he going backwards? Well, or or maybe he's just going cyclical. That you work your way through the thirteen traits and then you start again. And right, and in his model, in Rabbi Leffen's model, you actually measure. Even though you're working on humility, you're measuring it against the twelve other traits every single. Uh huh. Uh huh. So you actually are working on all thirteen traits every single day. Well, that's humbling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so speaking of humbling, I want to go to chapter 31, verse 13. If 31, no. Uh, okay, sorry. Why do I say? Oh, yeah, right. Because um, in, in chapter 31, verse 13, it says... So speak also to the children of Israel, Lamar saying, Ah, uh, therefore, or verily, et Shabtotai Tishmaru, you shall keep my Shabbat because it's a sign between me and between you throughout your generations to know that I am the I am God, Ani Hashem, Makadishchem, who sanctifies you, who humbles you who like because we know kadosh like so god is humbling us kadosh has a is to make us holy but it's also to make us separate and so it's like oh just in case you think you're the holiest thing on the planet i also need you to pull apart so that you don't sit there comparing yourself to everybody else and going look how much better i am it's like we need you to step back so that you don't puff yourself up, but at the same time, know that you're holy. And I think that is, for me, that one line creates the tension that I have in, in, in developing humility, is how can I be a B'Tselem Elohim, made in the image of God, and at the same time, I'm just giving half a shackle, just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. and, and you're not even asking my name, right? That was the point of giving half a shackle, is we're not going to count you by name. 
we're just going to ask you for half a shackle. So whether you have a fancy Giorgio Armani suit on or whether you have sackcloth, it don't matter. We yeah. just we just want you to be recognized as being the same. I love that. I think that is um I think that is almost that is something that uh that is struggled with even by Moses, the greatest prophet in all of Israelite history. Uh Nechama Leibovitch says uh uh in her studies in Shemot, she says verbs of movement like lech, red, go and get down are frequently used metaphorically in scripture. Um, and, and the Midrash, there are a lot of Midrashim about why, you know, what those words mean, and especially in this context. Moses is having this elevated experience, and God says, get down. Uh uh, the Talmud in Brachot 32b says, get down from your lofty station. Did I not advance you only on account of Israel? Now that Israel has sinned, what are you to me? Whereupon Moses' strength ebbed and his away from him, and his world and his words failed him. So and God says to him, Your people have corrupted themselves. And they're no longer at that moment God's people. He doesn't say my people. He says, your people. Uh, and this reflects uh, uh, the prophet Hosea's formulation in Hosea 1.9, you are not my people. There are, there are instances here of great elevation, and this is the one instance really in which elevation ends suddenly and dramatically. And I think one of the lessons that we can learn through Moses in this instance is that even if we are seeking and having and attaining elevated spiritual experience for ourselves, we are still responsible to communities, and we have to remind ourselves to lech and red, to go and get down from those lofty experiences. In and of themselves, they mean nothing unless we are containers for that energy for other people. Right. And maybe when we do that and we're a container for other people and we include everyone else, um, maybe that is is a good way to develop humility as well. In chapter 32, verse 32, I love it because um, 32 in the Hebrew Aleph Beit is lev, is lamed vet. Ooh, that's so awesome. It's, so it's the heart. So it So it forces us to bring our heart in. So in that, in chapter 32, verse 32, or if we go back actually to chapter, to verse 31, so it says, Moses came back to God and he said, Oi, okay, so this people has sinned a great sin and they made a God of gold. And then in 32, it says, will, um, will you forgive their sin? And if you don't, blot me, blot me out of the book which you've written. And it's interesting because in the previous Pasha, in Pasha Teruma from last week, um, it's the only Pasha from the beginning of the book of Exodus to the end of the book of Numbers that Moses' name is not mentioned. Ooh. So God did that. God blotted out Moses' name. And it's like, if I'm going to be the leader of the people, I'm going to stand up for them. 
And I'm going to say, look, they keep screwing up. They keep making all these mistakes, but I'm still their leader. And they're still struggling to figure out how to live after 210 years of slavery in Egypt. I'm willing to lose my name and everything that my name represents, the leadership that my name represents, blotted out. And I I would love to see, like, let, let's say CEOs of major corporations actually take a hit as opposed to walking away, you know, as opposed to their company failing and they still get a payout of $50 million a year. Right, right. What happens after this part that you read is God says in verse 34, go now, again, you know, lech, lead the people where I told you. See, my angel will go before you, but when I make an accounting, I will bring them to account for their sins. In other words, um, first of all, um, you will continue to lead. I will continue to be the God of this people, but there is no such thing as an action without an accounting. Or like a free lunch. There's no free lunch. There's no free lunch. <clears throat> Even as there is divine protection, there is no there is no free lunch. And I think this is a message not only for each of us individually, but for all of Israel. Um, there is a danger sometimes that one can become uh, uh, so puffed up with one's knowledge or learning or with one's spiritual work that um, that one thinks one is beyond uh, that kind of accounting. But part of what's going on in our lives is that we never are beyond that accounting. Um, my mother, in whom in whose honor we're learning today, lived three months past her 100th birthday. So that meant she had decades and decades of physical decline. When she was in her 30s, she got she contracted polio. Wow. And she walked with a limp for the rest of her life. Uh, she used to be a dancer. She loved to dance and she could mm -hmm. no longer dance. Uh, but she made so much of the remaining 70 years of her life. Um, hers, that lesson, the lesson to me in that is uh, while our physical containers change and in some ways begin to decline, that should be in direct inverse proportion to our spiritual learning and knowledge. That is how all of Judaism is constructed. That's really nice. That's nice. You know, I never got to meet your mom. It would have been such a nice thing to do. Mm. I'm so yeah. sorry about that. But I, uh, but I sort of, but I really did meet her through all your stories. I didn't met her through you. Uh, chip off her block. Right. Right. Which, which is a treat. Um, I, I want to say something about what you just said, which is that when you make a mistake and God forgives you, that it also requires self-forgiveness. Yes. But, but, but this is what I learned from this week's Pasha about self-forgiveness, is that it's forgive but don't forget, because I want to learn from my mistake, and I think that's an act of humility. So Moses goes up and gets the second, uh, well, smashes the first set of tablets, right? And then goes back up the mountain and gets the second set. And then when they build the Aaron, the ark, what goes in it? Both sets of tablets, the broken and the new. And so I think that's our lesson is 
we need to be reminded all the time of the broken pieces as well, that we screw up, we make mistakes, and then hopefully we have the wisdom to go apologize and you know do teshuva, uh, our process of repentance, and correct things. But we need to remember that we're human and we're going to continue to make mistakes. I think that's a beautiful observation. And I think Torah is one long example of that. Torah contains all the brokenness, all the failures of the Israelite people, and yet it is still a sacred container, just like the Aron that holds the broken tablets. And I think that's a, a, a good place to end. We could go on all day. We could do a month just on this Parsha and this Midah, um, but I think we should call it for today, just in the interests of the time of our listeners. Um, so I want to thank you, Moji. I think this was a really rich and interesting conversation on Parshat Kitisa and the Midah of Humility. And I want to thank our listeners and remind them, uh, remind you, our listeners, that we do this every week, um, that we'll be moving on to a new Torah portion next week and still talking about the character trait of humility for three more weeks. Uh, and we're very grateful uh, for you whenever you do manage to join us on this journey. Any last pearls of wisdom, Moja? Not a pearl of wisdom, but just a wish that your mom's neshama should have an aliyah, should have an elevation to its highest levels. And I'm glad that we got to dedicate this podcast uh, to her memory. Thank you so much. And thank you again to you, our listeners, for listening to another episode of Self-Control Through Torah. I'm David Gottlieb. And I'm Modia Silva. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.